If you will, turning your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, that's where we'll be continuing today. As you turn there, Jonathan Edwards, probably his most famous popular sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which God used in uh, starting there in Northampton. And we used mightily to see the Great Awakening here in the States flourish and bloom. When I was in high school, we actually still read that in English class. That may mean I'm old, but uh, I don't know if they still do or not. But they're in the back there, so if you're here, pick that up. It's an important part of America's history. And... Uh, Faithful sermon by Edwards. In another sermon that he preached, sermon entitled, The World Judged Righteously by Christ, this is what Edwards says. The end of judgment will be more fully answered by a public and general than only by a particular and private judgment. The end for which there is any judgment at all, is to display and glorify the righteousness of God, which end is more fully accomplished by calling men to an account, bringing their actions to the trial and determining their state according to them. The whole world, both angels and men, being present to behold, than if the same things should be done in a more private way. At the day of judgment, there will be the most glorious display of justice of God that ever was made. Then God will appear to be entirely righteous towards everyone. The justice of all his moral government will on that day be at once discovered. Then all the objections will be removed the conscience of every man shall be satisfied. The blasphemies of the ungodly will be forever put to silence. And argument will be given for the saints and angels to praise God forever. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. And after these things, I heard a great voice of many people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and honor and power be to the Lord, our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. There is a day coming. And it wasn't just something that was talked about in Edward's day. It's true today. There is a day of judgment coming. The wrath of the Lamb. On that day, it'll be so terrible that people will cry out for rocks, mountains to fall upon them so that they might escape the wrath of the Lamb. But the mountains will not fall. The rocks will not hide them. God's word tells us it will be so because it's been appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. I pray we take the judgment as seriously as John does. 
But I do wonder if we've abandoned any real true belief that there is a coming judgment. Have we cast that aside as something people with wigs like Edwards preached, but not true and relevant today? Well, John believes that it is so. There is a day of judgment, and you should believe it too. We should. Jesus believed it was so. The Bible is clear that there is a day. The word hell is used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of them from the lips of Jesus. He spoke of the day of judgment with clarity and specificity. He said to his disciples, Matthew 10, 14 and 15, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that, town, that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Or how vivid he was about the horrors of hell. Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Friends, do we really believe that there is a day of judgment? Do we believe in the horrors of hell? It's a sobering topic. Um, it's there. I'm glad one of our reading groups, Mike Ingram, is going through that little booklet. Some of y'all have read that. I'm glad. To quote, Mike's not here, so I'll quote him. He says, it's the most horrible thing you'll ever read, and very necessary that you read it. I wonder if we do believe that, because we get wrapped up in other issues it just shows that we're passionate about them and we're, we see them as urgent. So, these things come and go across our screens. Some of us see the rise of Marxism. And we say, oh, no, no, worldly ideologies. We have to, fight. We have to do whatever we can to stop that. Some of us see uh, uh, things happening in our lives and in our world. And we always ask the question, how can it be averted? So even on Sunday school day, we just talked about rising temperatures of the earth, climate change, things like that. People see that and say, what can we do? What can we change? How can we avert disaster? Many Christians say that. Uh, in our lifetime, think of how many times the threat of nuclear holocaust has come up. And people are like, oh, the bomb. We, what can we do to stop nuclear holocaust? Well, friends... In that moment, we see, like, yeah, we want to do everything we can to avoid that. But things like nuclear holocaust, it's only a possibility. The holocaust of divine wrath, the wrath of God, is a biblical certainty. But we don't seem nearly as concerned with the day of judgment as we do with the state of things in the world in which we live. There will be a day of divine wrath where never dying souls will be brought and for unbelievers 
It will be worse than anything that living in a Marxist government or disease from a holo uh, nuclear fallout, worse than anything that you can imagine. So I hope we take the day of judgment seriously. It's a real thing. The day is coming. I don't know when it is, but it is coming. When you feel the impulse to save the world from some ideology or from some uh, happening or some possibility, I hope that your heart will be bent and say there are souls that are not ready to stand before the Lord, and they will not stand in the day in the congregation of the righteous. They will not be able to stand in the judgment. I think you'll, I hope you'll consider the eternal salvation of your neighbors and the millions of unreached peoples in the world. But we don't have to go out there. We can stay in here. What about you? Does talking about the day of judgment, the judgment of Almighty God, does it make you nervous? A little twinge. Does it make you uneasy? Do you say, ah, about 95%, I'm all right. But boy, that 5% can keep you up at night. Because what if? Well, John is going to give us instruction that there is a way to approach the day of judgment with fearless confidence. We see confidence and boldness on the day of judgment. We see how not to fear the day of judgment. His main point in this book all along has been assurance for the believer. And here in this text, he wants you to have confidence on the day of judgment. Don't be paralyzed or depressed about the day that is coming and will come. But you can have confidence for the day of judgment. How does that happen? Well, let's read John, 1 John 4, verses 17 through 19. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So, two things today. First, I want us to see this perfected love. And what flows from this perfected love in verses 17 and 18. And then we're going to see the flawless God, the excellencies of God in verse 19. The source from which all this love flows. So let's start in verse 17. Notice in verse 17, there are three clauses. So if we're looking at this idea of perfected love, let's just start there in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us. That's the first second clause you see. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Third clause. Because as he is, 
so also are we in this world. All right? So this one verse, the result of having love perfected gives us confidence for the day of judgment. And the reason it's perfected and this confidence comes to us is that it shows we are like Christ. So let's just walk through that because even the terminology may be strange to us. What is perfected love? What does that mean? In this love, uh, in this, is love perfected with us? Well, what is this? Let's start with that this. Well, let's look back to the right before it, right? God is love. He who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So perfected love here, it refers to, so God's love in us coming to uh, completion or arriving at its purpose. It comes to fruition in our actions as we love one another. So if we love one another, his love is perfected in us. So the love of God expressing itself it's being displayed. How? And we saw this last week. Out of our love one for another. Now, we want to even pause there. Because this is different than how we usually use the word perfect or perfected. Most people, when they hear the word perfect, they think flaw, like flawless. Or something was um, kind of stained and flawed, but now there's no imperfection in it at all. It's flawless. But John uses this word, and the New Testament uses this word. It usually, they usually don't use it the way we do. And I want us to see some various texts to show that. When the New Testament uses this word, it almost always means to attain a goal or uh, to something to be completed. So the NIV is helpful there. It comes to completion, the NIV says. So typically, we don't use the word perfected that way, but the Bible does. For example, John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That word accomplish is the same word in 1 John 4.12 and 1 John 4.17. It's translated perfected. So that does not mean that Jesus took this flawed work of God and made it flawless. It means he took this uh, assignment from God and he put action to it and he performed it and he completed it. John 19, verse 28, Jesus said, I thirst in order that to fulfill the scriptures. That word fulfill there is the same word that we have perfected. So that does not mean Jesus took a flawed and imperfect scripture and made it flawlessly perfect. That's not what it's talking about. It means he took the promise of scripture, he put action to it, he completed it. 
James chapter 2, verse 22, the same thing. He said, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So that word completed, same word that we have in 1 John 4, 17, perfected. Well, how do works perfect faith? Well, they don't make them flawless. It's not saying your faith is flawless now, but it makes it an active faith. Now that your faith is seen, it's displayed, there are results. It reaches its goal in good works for James. And that's how we can speak of a perfected faith. Doesn't mean flawless. Doesn't mean your faith doesn't need improvement. It means it has attained the goal of action. It's not just words. There's something behind it. The talk has a walk to, to back it up. That's how Paul talked about his journey. He doesn't mean flawless in Acts 20, 24. He says, if only I might accomplish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord. Same word, accomplish, same word we have for perfected. He does not mean his journey is going to be flawless. He means he's putting into action what the Lord has assigned him to do. He's going to bring it to completion. So, John 4, 12 says, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, the way we normally use that word, that would say, Oh, yeah, our love... Because we love one another, it is a flawless expression of the love of God. What's wrong with that? It's not. We're very flawed. Our love is fickle. Our love is, is wavering. Our love is all over the place. Our, our love is forgetful. Every husband who has forgotten the anniversary knows that. Our love is not perfect. What's being said is God's love is being put into action. God's love reaching its appointed goal. How? Through the love, human love that is practiced here. So perfect love is not just this incomplete idea, not some kind of emotion, not some kind of potential in my heart. I feel love. No, no. Love is completed when it's put into action. That's when it's perfected. When there's action that goes with that love. It's shown. How do you know you have the love of God? It is displayed through action. So, 1 John four seventeen. Here's the whole clause. You could summarize it like this, right? In this, that is in your love for each other, God's love is put into action. And it reaches its appointed goal when we don't just talk about love. But when that love reaches a stage of action. Well, what's that look like? What's perfected love looks, look like then? What's it like to put it into action? It means you don't just talk about evangelizing. You evangelize. 
You don't just talk about feeding hungry people. You feed hungry people. You don't just talk about the sad state and you know, floundering new believers and how the church has always done a terrible job about discipleship. It means you start discipling people. That's what it looks like. Second clause. What's the result of having this perfected love? We have confidence for the day of judgment. In this, love is perfected in us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. This is how we gain confidence in the day of judgment, by putting God's love into action, loving one another. We don't gain confidence because we're sinlessly perfect. He's already told us, 1 John 1, 7, if we say we do not sin, we deceive ourselves. And that's not what the word perfected means. We don't uh, gain confidence because we're sinlessly perfect. We gain it because there is evidence that God is in my life and God's love is in us. How is there evidence? It is seen. It's displayed. It's coming to fruition. It's accomplished. It's very much like 1 John 3, verses 18 and 19. Little children, let us love, not love in word or speech, but in deed and truth. Same thing. Don't just talk about loving. Put deeds to it. Let that love become complete. The next verse, he says, and by this they will know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. So the way to have confidence before God on the day of judgment is to have heard the word, the command. This, so this command that's been there from the beginning, love one another, but don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. Let it be a completed action. Let there be deeds. Let it be turned into deeds. This is what Jesus says, right? If you love me, do what? Keep my commands. How do you know if you love Jesus or not? Do you keep his commands? Do you desire keeping his commands? Do we mean perfectly? We won't. You can't. But is there action to it? Is there obedience there? When will you know that you have kept them? It's not when you think, oh yeah, God's commands, they're true, they're good. But it's when that truth is embraced and how do I show that I've embraced them? Because there's, it comes to completion in action. I actually start obeying them. So John's whole thrust this whole time has been that Christians would have assurance. And loving one another is a reassuring evidence that we're truly born of God. That we have eternal life. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.14. Okay? You with me? Through two clauses? One more. What's the last clause? Verse 17. Why does this active love give us confidence? Because it shows we're like Jesus. In this, love is perfected in us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. 
The assumption is on the day of judgment, you won't have to fear because you're like Jesus. <laughs> See that? When, Jesus, when Christ comes to judge, the assumption is he's not going to condemn those that are in union with him and like him and are his. When Jesus comes and, and that appointed day, that day that is coming, when he comes, he will not condemn those in the family of God. That should give you confidence before God. I'm part of his family. He won't condemn me. But did you know you can't live at odds with the character of Jesus and expect to have any confidence at all? Right? So if you're a Christian and you're remaining in sin and you're unrepentant of sin, you should have no assurance. There, there is no assurance for you. You can't go back and say, well, when I was 10, I did pray. Because the Bible says, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we pray in your name? It's going to say, I never knew you. If you are actively dismissing, whether it's just dabbling in sin or immersed in it. You should not have confidence for that day. Because this confidence that he speaks of, it flows from abiding in Christ, Christ in you, and it comes from obedience. Now, if you're an unbeliever in this room, you should not have confidence for that day either. Because all you have to stand on is, look how good I am. And you will not be able to stand. You will not be able to defend your sin against the holy God. Your mouth, the Roman says, your mouth will be shut on the day of judgment. We see the same thing. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who, is, who does right is born of him. There's evidence. How do I know that I'm born of God? There's evidence. I can be confident when he comes to judge the world. Verse 29. To do right as he is righteous. Our text says, as he is, so are we in the world. So, when you love each other, with this love that's more than just talk, when the love of God reaches its goal of practice in our lives, this should give us deep, unshakable confidence for the day of judgment. So if all you do is talk about love, but there are no deeds of love, that destroys assurance. And I... I our, our conscience condemns us. And I think we've all been there, haven't we? Where we think, oh, I ought to do this 
in loving kindness to my brother and I don't do it, and I think, later I'm like, oh, what was I shouldn't have done that. We put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. If we do that, if there is this evidence, this command that he's given from the beginning, when there's evidence that we are doing that, not flawlessly, but God's love in us has, has brought this to completion, there is, it's there, we have this deep sense of our own faith. And we will feel confidence for the day of judgment. Because we're displaying in these acts of love that we are Christ's. We're not, we're not rebels and strangers anymore, but we're part of his family. Verse 18 is the exact opposite. So verse 17 is all positive. Here's how you have confidence. Verse 18 is, hey, here's, gets rid of fear, right? It's spoken in a negative sense. Here's how not to have fear on the day of judgment. If you lay in bed at night fearing the day of judgment, here's how... You don't have to fear the day of judgment. It's the same way, perfected love. It's the same answer. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And he who fears is not perfected in love. So he who fears is not perfected in love. When love is perfected, we have confidence. When it's not perfected, we fear. Perfected love. Not loving flawlessly, but loving in deed and truth, not just in our words. It comes to completion in action. So there's no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. The reason there's no fear in love there's no threat of punishment for being loving. You see that? When you love with real, practical deeds, you never get pun- You never walk away from loving someone thinking, oh, I might get punished for that. That's not what happens. Fear is when you feel what you feel when you know you have done something you ought not to do and you deserve to get punished for it. That is fear. And so here, there's no fear in love. When you love one another, love like this, in deeds, it casts out fear. So the way to boldness and confidence and fearlessness about the day of judgment, don't just talk about loving each other. Love each other in deeds and reality. When it passes from just talking to doing, And where will you find the power to do that? Where will you find the power to love other people well? And actually, do you are you sitting there thinking, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta dig down deep. I gotta get some new how? Oh, I gotta love. If I want to have confidence, if I want to stand before God one day, I gotta have. What are some ways I can love people better? How do you know you love somebody enough? I mean, I bought you a car, but I should have bought you a house. (laughs) How do I know I've loved you enough? I mean, I've 
bought you a meal. Ought to buy you ten meals. How do I know when I've loved you enough? How do you know you have loved God enough to stand in the day of judgment? How do you know? Have you ever wondered, oh, do I trust in Jesus enough? Well, friend, your faith is flawed and small, and it wavers. And sometimes you trust a whole bunch, and sometimes you don't trust at all. That's the wrong questions to be asking to gain confidence. And so we close with verse 19. As for us, so we love, why? He first loved us. Our acts of love towards other people, they never originate in us. All of our faith, love, the fruit of the Spirit, it's initiated by God. You don't have to ask, have I done enough? No, the Bible's answer is always reverse. God loves us, and because he loves us, and now because of that, I believe, the love of God that has for us. We see that in verse 16. I trust the love that Jesus, God has for us in Jesus Christ. He abides with me. His love overflows from my heart into action. That's how I know it's there. It's displayed in the love I have for others. Therefore, I have confidence. Its origin is God. Its starting place is God. It doesn't start with you. It starts that God loved us first. It all begins with the love of God. We love because he first loved us. So if you lack the power to love, you know someone and it's hard to love them, where will the strength, the power, the origin that you need to go to to find love, strength to love them? You've got to go to God. You've got to go to him. You look to God. You look to the cross. You let the love of God for sinners move you with hope. This is what John Newton said. Since God saved me, I despair for no man. So when we look at someone and we say, uh, I can't love that person, we need to look at what God has done. He's looked at someone like you and loved you. He loved you. He loved me. That should give us confidence before God. Not how much I've done, but the source of this whole thing, uh, where it flows from. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All right? So here, two things are mentioned. The blood of Jesus, what's it do? It cleanses us of all sin. And because he's cleansed us of all sin, what do we do? We walk in the light. We walk in the light. Walking in the light does not atone for my sin. The blood of Jesus Christ does. But those whose sins are atoned for, they, they walk in the light. 
You love because God first loved you. Well, what does that look like? Is it just theoretical? Is it just some kind of like chilly willies up your spine when you're thinking about God loves me? No. How does God love you? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does it look like that Jesus loves you? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What is the end of it? That she would be holy and blameless, Ephesians 5.25. It wasn't just theoretical. There was action to the very love of God. This is the love of God. You only love because he loves you first. Our confidence on the day of judgment is based on the fact that the blood of Jesus has atoned for, taken away all of our sins. And as a result, I walk. My walking does not atone for my sins. But because I've been saved, I walk in the light. It confirms the genuineness of my faith. It confirms the fact that I am savingly in a relationship with Jesus Christ, whose blood cleanses me from all sin. And because of the truth of the gospel, I can approach the, throne, approach the day of judgment with great confidence. Because even though I'm a I've, a rebel by nature. Christ has come as my substitute and taken my sin and has given me eternal life. And now, as a result, no condemnation. Now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. Wesley said, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Walking in the light, perfected in love, same thing. Neither one of those things atone for your sin. You will never be able to love someone enough to atone for your sin and God say, all right, you get to come into my heaven. You can't love someone that much or that rightly. But those that are born of God, those who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and only through Jesus Christ, by his grace, through faith, and trusting the promises of God to those who believe, his blood avails for us. And as a result, we love one another. There's the evidence. And at the throne of God, God on the day of judgment, we will have confidence. Confidence in Christ and the gospel. Confidence because it, it's evidenced in our lives. This day is coming. Acts chapter 17 says he is appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has proven this by raising him from the dead. This day is coming. Will you have, do you have confidence for that day? Or are you fearful for that day? 
Revelation 19, 1 and 2. After these things, I heard a great voice of many people in heaven. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power be to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. There'll be no mistakes. Is your confidence in the gospel, in the evidence that your life is in union with Christ? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we praise you for you are great and glorious. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we love because you first loved us. And Lord, because you have, because we have trusted in Christ, because we have uh, placed all of our hopes for this life and the next on Christ, Lord, we walk in obedience. We walk in obedience to your command. I pray for the saints who are here today, and may they hear John's word and have great confidence, knowing that this day is coming. And may it be evidenced, and may our confidence grow as we love one another in tangible ways. Lord, for those who profess to be Christians, but there is no evidence, Lord, would you convict them by your spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment. And may their hearts be right with you. Through repentance and faith. And we pray that that faith will not be dead, but will be active. And Lord, for those who are, they're not Christians and they know it. Would you so stir in their hearts by your spirit the reality of this coming day that they would know there is no shelter for them on that day and there's no peace to be found and there's no, uh, nothing but fear for them outside of Christ. Pray that you'd have mercy on them. And that they would call upon Christ, even now, for their eternal salvation. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.